Welcome, everybody, to the Family Law Now podcast. I'm Russell Alexander. I've been practicing family law with the team here at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers for over 20 years. We help clients during separation, divorce, and family-related matters. Recently, we went through objectives and duties of the Divorce Act. That's part one of our podcast. It's already been published. Look for it online. Today, we are going to do part two, which is best interests. And those sections under the new legislation of the Divorce Act, most if not all of these sections have come into force as of March 1st, 2021. So lots to learn. This is a big section. We've got a lot to cover today. Um, we're going to have show notes with references to sections and items that we're talking about, references to useful websites where you can learn more. This podcast series will be helpful to clients, parents, lawyers, other people in the, in the family law um, administration of justice in the family law system. Most of our information today has been, uh, can be found at the Department of Justice for the government of Canada. They have an excellent website. So all the details and all the slides you'll be seeing on the screen, you can learn more through the government website. The, um, the Divorce Act is a federal legislation, so it applies across Canada. Each province has their own provincial jurisdiction dealing with other matters, including property. So you wanna be mindful of what province you're in. We are lucky that in Ontario, we have a unified family court in most jurisdictions, and we also are before the Superior Court of Justice. So these Divorce Act changes are directly relevant to the work that we do every day. But before we go into a deeper dive into the Divorce Act changes, let's welcome our guests, uh, find out a little bit about who they are and what they do. Um, let's start with uh, Michelle. You're a bit of a returning celebrity. You help us out with our divorce webinars every other Wednesday. So welcome back. Hi, everyone. I'm sure you're going to get sick and tired of seeing me doing these. Never, uh, my name never. Is, <laughs> my name is Michelle Mulchin. I've been a family lawyer for the past 10 years. I practice in all areas of family law, including um, child support, spousal support, equalization, parenting time, decision making, separation agreements, marriage contracts, basically everything. I also am collaboratively trained and have done my training for the past five years. So um, that is my preferred method of family separation. And I think that it really helps to maintain the best interests of the children and helps to, um, it, it helps families separate amicably. And we learned that in the first part now, uh, Michelle, one of the prior, primary changes is alternative dispute resolution before going to court. Absolutely. Yeah, great stuff. Thank you. Alex is joining us. Welcome, Alex. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Russ. Uh, hi, everyone. So I'm the new kid on the block at the firm. So uh, I am an associate with uh, Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. Careful, uh, we might make you do some karaoke. Uh, I think uh, one of our clerks is a big new kid fan. So that's a whole other podcast going <laughs> on there. So let's uh, see how the divorce act goes first. Great. Uh, so uh, just so everyone knows, uh, prior to joining Russell Alexander, I was previously legal counsel for Children's Aid Society. And then prior to that, I was a staff lawyer with Legal Aid Ontario. 
So I practice primarily in the areas of family law and child protection. So my concentration has been more with decision-making, contact time, parenting plans. And uh, when I was with the society dealing with high level child protection issues where the government intervention uh, was required. Uh, I was called to the bar in 2013 and I've been practicing law for the past eight years. And during my time in practicing law, uh, I've seen the best interests of the child test in various contexts. So today's topic is of great interest to me. I'm really grateful to be uh, presenting with all of you. Thanks, Alex. I know child protection cases, best interest is always first and foremost. So it's really going to be helpful to have your insight today. Thank you for joining us. And we have a return guest, one of our favorites uh, from previous uh, shows. Margie, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, thanks, Russ. Um, I, my name is Margie Primero Pimentel. Uh, I am an associate lawyer here at Russell Alexander Collabor Family Lawyers. Um, I've been, I was called to, to the uh, Ontario Bar in 2002 and uh, have been practicing family law for, gosh, I'm doing the math in my head right now, <laughs> about 14 years. Um, uh, I also, uh, my, my focus uh, in, in my cases as well is to assist um, my clients in, in reaching resolution amicably, uh, try to avoid court as, as much as possible and only go to court in the very, you know, in cases where we need judicial input. Um, I'm also a, a, an accredited family mediator. Um, and so, and the reason why I, I went ahead and got my certification um, and accreditation for that is because I, I really firmly believe um, in, in trying to assist parties in reaching an amicable resolution, again, uh, with minimal uh, court intervention. And, and, and that's really, um, in my opinion, in the best interest of the children as well. Thank and you. You're also taking a look at dispute resolution officer roles as well, doing some shadowing there. Yes, I am also a dispute resolution officer. I'm on the dispute resolution officer panel uh, for the New Market in Toronto Courts, Superior Court of Justice. So, uh, yeah. It's a great addition. We certainly need more lawyers like you, Margie, especially in these days. So let's get at it. We've got a lot to cover off. We've kind of broken it up into sections. So uh, Michelle is going to take the first run. Margie's sections, we're going to break up into two parts. I'll jump in between. And then Alex is going to bring us home. Uh, so let's make a start with you, Michelle. Give us a bit of an overview and let's take a dive into the sections. Thanks so much. And I just wanted to say, I'm so looking forward to this chat with everyone here. I think we bring a very varied and wealth of expertise. So I'm looking forward to everyone's comments and learning from you as well. So the first thing we're gonna talk about today is the big section, which is uh, section 16.1 of the Divorce Act, which is the best interest of the child. And so this section basically says that the court shall take into consideration only the best interest of the child of the marriage when making a parenting order or contact order. And prior to this, there was a lengthy section that talked about orders for custody, interim orders for custody, what happens when um, persons other than a spouse make an application for custody, access, terms of access, past conduct, uh, maximum contact, all of these varied principles that uh, the court wanted the lawyers and parties to take into consideration when making decisions for the child. Now, this new section replaces all of that, and it's very simple. The best interests of the child shall prevail. 
And the reason for this change is very important. Uh, we've had studies from you know, 1998 and onwards showing us that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to parenting, to what used to be custody is now decision-making and parenting time, and that every single case is different. So what this really brings home is the children are at the forefront. Children's needs have to be um, thought of and met when making any decision about a child. So I really liked, loved this change. I thought it was a really great change. There was the best interest of the child test that we used to use before, but it wasn't actually in this section of the Divorce Act. And so now it really brings it home that this is what we're going to be looking at. Uh, Margie, what was your take on this? Uh, well, I agree with you and this is a welcome change. I, I think that, um, and, and the provision I think that you're talking about that we've used in Ontario Z, uh, Section 24, I believe, of the Children's Law Reform Act is something similar, um, but not as, I, in my opinion, as comprehensive or as, um, dare I say the word, affirmative. Uh, it, it, this, this now says, shall take into consideration. Um, and, uh, and, and just as a, a bit of a background, when I was, uh, you know, looking into the changes of the Divorce Act, I, I, I found it interesting that over the past several years, there was a, a push by some um, you know, lawmakers to propose a different sort of change to the to the uh, Divorce Act, which would result in a default uh, shared parenting arrangement, which is quite, you know, it, that's, that's something that occurs in some jurisdictions. Um, but what this uh, new provision shows is that uh, there is no default um, position in, in, in Canada in favor of, of a shared parenting arrangement, shared parenting meaning shared decision-making responsibility or shared uh, parenting time. And that the only consideration is the best interest of the children. So um, I, I think that was a, that's an interesting um, look at like how things evolved and how the, the government decided that this is what they wanted to focus on and not on a default uh, shared parenting arrangement that's, that's, that occurs in some jurisdictions around the world. That's a really interesting comment. I know for a while that the legislation was a default to shared parenting and that that received a lot of debate and a lot of back and forth in terms of whether that's the right way to start. So that's a great point, Margie. Thank you. Alex, would you mind giving us your take on this? Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with this new approach. I think the legislative amendments take a very child-centered approach, and I think that there's a greater awareness now of the implications for children in high-conflict situations, and that a customized approach is necessary to meet the unique needs of diverse children and families uh, in our community. I mean, even here at Russell Alexander, we have offices in so many different jurisdictions, and those needs are going to vary across those different jurisdictions. And um, those needs change over time and they become fluid. Children don't stay at their same age forever. They get older, their needs change. And I think that this new approach is going to create a very flexible approach so that we can continue to meet those needs on an ongoing basis. Thank you, Alex. That's really great. Russ, what did you think about all of this? Yeah, I echo everybody's comments. I think the one thing I would highlight, Michelle, is that if you take a close look at the language, it says, uh, it requires courts to consider only the best interests of the children. So the, the parliament is sending a really clear message to judges and to 
family lawyers and parents that the only consideration that's going to be uh, considered is the best interest of the child. So that, that's the starting point. So I think you did a great job highlighting this section. Michelle, thank you. Thanks, everyone. If you don't mind, we'll move to the next section now. And Margie, something you said about, you know, the shared parenting being one of the things that they were arguing uh, when deciding this legislation. One of the main reasons they actually moved away from that is because of this issue of um, safety. Domestic abuse, as we know, is a massive problem, especially today. Um, as we're doing this podcast, it's March of 2021. We're still in the midst of this pandemic, and we know that we are trying really hard to help victims of domestic abuse and children who are caught in those situations as well. So this new section, 16.2, says that the court shall give primary consideration to a child's physical, emotional, and psychological safety, security, and well-being. And there was actually no section prior to this that really enunciated and um, ensured that children's well-being was taken into consideration. And I think it's exactly for that purpose of domestic abuse and um, abuse against children. So I think that it's a very important section that we have in there. Of course, as lawyers, we did take into consideration these factors before, but now the court and of course, Canada is saying specifically that this is going to be a primary consideration when making decisions for children. So Alex, I'm really interested to hear your take on this given your history. Would you mind giving us some uh, thoughts? Yeah, definitely. So I'm really excited about these changes because I think we're seeing the dawn of a new era where the legal system is now putting a magnifying glass to the spectrum of harm that's created or that's exacerbated for children that are exposed to a family breakdown. So I think emotional and psychological harm are areas that families may not have extensive knowledge on. And I think that court oversight is really going to assist with the vulnerabilities uh, that children have to go through that sometimes get overshadowed uh, by the toxic conflict. And in many cases, you kind of have these competing uh, multi-layered conflicts that are going on and it's a balancing act because you're dealing with some of the issues of the parents, you're dealing with some of the vulnerabilities of the children and it's kind of like a moving constellation. So it's really nice to show that we're gonna keep children at the central focal point when we start navigating through some of those legal issues. Thank you so much. I think that's really insightful. Russ, what did you think about this section? Yeah, you know, this, this is really an important subject. Uh, Michelle and I talk about this in our webinar. You know, we've got these Zoom divorces now, but unfortunately, victims and children of domestic violence can fall through the cracks and you don't we don't really appreciate it because we're not seeing it and uh, Michelle and I recently came across a video where during a trial a zoom trial the domestic the complaint the victim was testifying uh, looking awkward and the prosecutor had the foresight to send the police over for the check the defendant was on the Zoom trial. The judge told the defendant to step out, take a picture of the address he's at. He refused to, said his device was um, dying. Long story short, the police show up. The defendant is in the room with the complainant while she's testifying during her Zoom trial. 
so thank goodness the prosecutor picked up on it. The police were able to intervene. Um, in the U.S., they used the word bond. The bond was revoked and the, the defendant was uh, detained during the course of his Zoom trial. So we can only imagine what's going on behind the screens uh, when we're doing these hearings electronically. I think the Divorce Act changes are, are right on, spot on in terms of protecting children. And this is something we need to be more mindful. It's unfortunate, but it's real. And we'll include a link to the video that I just described in today's shows, show notes. Uh, but there's deadly serious consequences in terms of domestic violence and violence against children. Unfortunately, um, uh, they sometimes get overlooked. So I think it's, it's good that the Divorce Act has highlighted uh, this is a, a necessary section. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks so much, Russ. And Margie, I see you nodding your assent. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, I completely agree. And um, I think the, the one thing that, like, not the one thing, but the main thing I, I really like about this change is that when you think about the best interest of the child, and, and I know we're going to get into more details about what criteria the, the you know, the, the courts will be looking at and, and take into consideration. But this re is really helpful in, in really defining, really putting parameters about what's, what do you mean by the best interest of the children or the child? Because it's, it's, it's really saying the primary consideration is the child's physical, emotional, psychological safety, security, and well-being. And to the extent that any of these criteria that we're gonna be going into greater detail on later on, um, you know, co conflict with each other, uh, you know, which, criteria, which factor, which situation in this particular child's um, you know, uh, situation really um, falls under this primary consideration. So I, I like the fact that the, the, the legislation the, is, is really trying to focus our attention on, yes, best interest of the, chi the child, but in what way, right? And focusing it on, on the child's well-being, safety, and security. So that's, that's what I really liked about this new change. Thank you. I also didn't mention before, but I really love that they added in psychological safety there as well, mm -hmm. because, you know, absolutely physical, emotional safety is important. But I think as lawyers, even we overlook sometimes the psychological aspects of a, of a child's safety. And it's important that we've highlighted that and noted that specifically so that both lawyers, courts and parties can, can look for that and to make some good decisions, keeping that in mind. So thanks everyone, that was really insightful. I really appreciated hearing your thoughts on this. Uh, let's move over to section 16.3a of the Divorce Act. And this is the section that basically says that, and this is something I think Alex, you touched on earlier, that the court shall in, given, uh, in making these decisions, look at the child's needs, given the age and stage of development, such as the child's need for stability. So what an interesting section. You know, we always talk about age and stage. And what does this really mean? And it means that a child who is two versus a child who is six versus a child who's 13 are all going to have very different needs and very different um, uh, criteria when deciding what's in their best interest. So again, it really goes to highlight that this is not, you know, every child who lives in Toronto is gonna to be dealt with the same way. Um, things like their age, we have an impact on what decisions are made and what's in the best interest of the child. 
And one of the things they really highlighted was the child's need for stability. And I think that is very important. And we see this pop up in so many cases. I have a case, I have a case today that I was working on just before that. And one of those big issues is which parent is going to be able to give a stable household and a stable um, set of rules and decision-making um, for, for a child? And how is that going to affect that child? So Russ, what did you think about this section? I think it's a really important section and we're going to talk a little bit more about views and preferences. Um, but we all know, you know, each child's different, right? We have very mature 12 year olds and very immature 15 year olds and each case is really fact driven. So I think this change addresses that in terms of child specific needs. Uh, you know, you may have a special needs child, you may have a child who have, has health issues that one parent might not be the best parent to deal with and the other parent would be better suited. Uh, so I think it's a, a really good change. Thank you so much, Russ. Margie, what did you think about this? I completely agree with uh, Russ. Um, this, this is basically a provision that I think most courts judges, lawyers, all have always taken into consideration. Um, every case when we're dealing with parenting issues is always very fact specific. But I like the fact that the, the, the Divorce Act now um, has put that in as, as one of the changes, uh, just to really refocus on every child is different. They, every child has different needs. They're at different stages. Um, and as like you said, there's a, the, the child's need for stability is, is uh, emphasized as well. So I, I like that part. Thanks. Thanks so much, Margie. Alex, what about you? What did you think about this? So we live in a climate now where there's vast supports and resources for children with medical conditions, mental health issues, and disabilities, as Russ was mentioning. So I think it's important that these aspects be considered when devising a long-term plan for children that's durable and that builds in safeguards for the child. I also think it's a great learning opportunity for caregivers of children to provide optimal circumstances for children to thrive in. A lot of them are faced with these difficult situations uh, where their children might be diagnosed with you know, a particular medical condition and they're gonna be in the same boat as any parent would about discovering something new about their child. And uh, it's important for not only that caregiver, but everyone in the extended family to sort of get a sense of what's going on, because I'm sure that child is going to be relying on a much larger network for support. So I think it's important that we look at what the plan is going forward to help children thrive. Thank you, absolutely. And, and what a great comment that, um, you know, you're looking at the age and stage of the child now, but also how your plan is going to grow with that child. So thanks so much. Margie, I think you were gonna talk about the next section. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, the next section, uh, the next criterion uh, that, that the courts will be considering when determining the child's best interest is the nature, section 16.3 sub B, the nature and strength of the child's relationship with each spouse, siblings, grandparents, and other important persons. Now, the, the courts have, uh, always uh, generally consider the nature of the relationship between the children and the parents as their first, their primary, uh, in their primary analysis of the case of when it comes to parenting. Um, and uh, this provision is important in my opinion because the, it recognizes 
the children can also have important relationships with, with extended family, with siblings, grandparents. Um, and that, that relationship that they have with uh, their siblings and extended family members, such as their grandparents, uh, can provide the stability they need during uh, this transitional time in their life, which is their parents' divorce. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, I think that, um, you know, that's, that's the main importance of this, of this addition to the Divorce Act, um, just recognizing the importance of the, the children's relationship with uh, not just the, their parents, but their extended family members. Um, what do you think about it, Michelle? Thanks so much, Margie. I agree. And, you know, when you think about the important people in a child's life, it may not only be grandparents and siblings, but for instance, there may be um, children from another relationship. If, for instance, one party has repartnered and their children that they're close to, or maybe there's, you know, like my kids, both of my brothers are such a major force in my children's life. So I think it's so great that the court um, they did say certain people, such as siblings, grandparents, and other family members, but they left it open so that other people in a child's life can be considered, and um, you can take a wholesome view of this child. So thank you, Margie. Thanks, Michelle. It's, it's, it's really important to also um, take into consideration other family member relationships that we don't really often think about. Um, what do you think, Alex? So I definitely agree with the emphasis on children's relationships because I think uh, the key figures in children's lives really shape sort of what that best interest test is going to look like. And I think the more that these relationships are fostered and strengthened, it will provide a child with a sense of security and sense of self. And uh, it'll be interesting to look at how that term security is going to be treated by the courts and from what perspective. And if we're going to be looking at independent, uh, neutral third parties to define what that is. So, I mean, I think we've all seen those scenarios where we have a parent who can provide the daily necessities for children, but may be deficient in maintaining a relationship with the other parent or other members of a child's life. So I think we're gonna start seeing a bit more of a focus on that coming from the courts. Thanks, Alex. How about you, Russ? Right. This, I think, you know, this is, I'm sitting here kind of pondering uh, because we wrote recently about uh, a decision where um, the issue was parental deference to, with respect to grandparent access. And that case, because of the pandemic, wasn't going to go to trial for a few years. And the judge actively took a stance and said, we're going to manage this through contested motions. So uh, reflecting on that case, I think this change is important, Margie, because it specifically lists grandparent. So I think this might be a bit of a, a change to the doctrine of parental deference where uh, parents will decide what kind of relationship grandparents have. Now, uh, grandparents can go to court and identify this section of the act and say, you must consider the child's relationship with us. And for most families, grandparents are a very important uh, route for kids when they're going through separation and divorce. Sometimes they're their only stable people in their lives. Uh, so I think, this, uh, I think this is an important change. I think it's a, a breath of fresh air. I think it's, if you're a grandparent looking for access or, or, or wanting parenting time, 
uh, or want to be considered in this analysis of the best interests of the child, this opens the door for you. The court, it let the parliament is specifically listed grandparents. So I think, uh, and that's, I think that's a good thing, right? The more stability, the more connection to extended family provided, you know, uh, the grandparents don't um, present a risk um, is going to be ultimately in the best interest of the child. So I think Parliament really nailed the, hit the nail on the head with this change. I think it's uh, moving in the right direction. Thank you, Margie. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for all your comments. It's uh, it's like to it's interesting to see everybody's take on 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 this new change. The next the next criteria uh, that the courts will be considering is. Uh, 16 sub 3 sub C, um, and that is each spouse's willingness to support the development and maintenance of the child's relationship with the other spouse. And that replaces the old section, uh, which says, uh, which, which deals with the maximum contact principle. And that mass, maximum uh, contact principle uh, really set, it's really about the principle that the child of the marriage should have as much contact with each parent as is consistent with the best interest of the child. So I think that's the most important aspect of this um, change. At first, uh, you know, the child's relationship with each parent is important and it's generally important for each parent to support uh, their relationship, the, the, that parent's relationship with the, uh, with the child. And um, one parent's unwillingness to support the, that ch the child's relationship with the other child um, is usually taken into account by the, by the courts when making uh, decisions about parenting. But I think that the, the main change of really removing uh, the principle of maximum contact um, is interesting uh, because it really solidifies the concept in the family law that there is no presumption of shared parenting or any parenting time uh, must be determined solely on the, on the analysis of the child's best interest. So I think that was the most interesting part of this change. What did you think, Alex? Yeah, so I think this section's great. Uh, one thing that I am curious to see is the parameters that the court uh, will be implementing or suggesting in terms of defining how a parent is going to be supporting the child's relationship with the other spouse. Uh, I think we've seen, you know, a lot of interesting scenarios where children might not want a relationship with the other parent and or a situation where it might not be healthy or safe for a child to have a relationship with the other parent. So I think some parents may be wondering what type of evidence they'll have to adduce when they go to court and how that might complicate the matter. And again, like I had mentioned before, uh, children's views can be subject to change. You know, they can be fluid. Uh, a lot of the times you have issues with coaching as well from certain parents or there's a lot of manipulation. So uh, I definitely think it's important that we codify this section so that we can pin down in each situation uh, what we need to look out for. Those are excellent points, Alex. I mean, I, and, and to your point about, uh, you know, the parameters around this section about, you know, taking into consideration each spouse's willingness to support the development and maintenance of the child's relationship with the other parent. I think, you know, safety as always, as we saw is one of the primary considerations. So um, that's a good point about whether or not uh, facilitating sort of relationship is, is appropriate under the circumstances in each case. What did you think, uh, Michelle? I really like this section. What really came to mind when I saw this is 
What a great section for helping clients to understand and managing their behavior from the beginning of a case. So, you know, now we can say to clients, look, you know, whatever you do, if you take unreasonable positions, for instance, in your application, or whether you do things to really undermine the other parents at the beginning of the case may have an effect at the end on what the courts determine are in the best interest of the child. And, you know, sometimes you have people who are so just overwhelmed with anger at the other spouse, that they're not really thinking about the importance of how their anger is directed and how it can affect the child or children um, in the case. So I think this is a really great section, not only for uh, courts, but also for lawyers and parties so that you can really take a look at what is, you know, what is your behavior and how is it going to impact the long-term goals that you have in the case? You know, that's an, that's, that's an excellent point, uh, Michelle. And I think you're, you're correct in, in that a lot of clients when they're in the, in the midst of their separation tend to be so um, blinded by their dislike, I would say in a nice way for the other parent that they lose sight of what's in the best interest of their child and, and really codifying that and reminding them that this is what's gonna be taken into consideration is, is uh, really important. Thanks, Raj. Yes. What are your thoughts? I have an opinion and I don't want to get in trouble, but uh, this maximum contact thing, I'm glad we're kind of uh, sweeping it away, right? So if we were arguing a case and we wanted to increase access, we would say, well, maximum contact requires you to step it up, right? I guess conceptually until it's 50-50, that's maximum contact. Um, if you're defending against that, right? You're saying it's not in the child's best interest that parent has a whole slew of other problems, right? Uh, and the judges would sometimes say, well, maximum contact principle, we're gonna step it up, right? Uh, so it, it was a very hard concept to defend against because fundamentally what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we're gonna park the child over here in the best interest over here and let's, let, let's level the playing field between mom and dad or mom and mom and dad and dad, whatever the relationship is, and go towards maximum contact. Well, that's ridiculous, right? You know, I know there's the studies that show kids do better who have a good relationship with both parents, but just to simply sit on your hands and say, well, it's gonna be maximum contact. You forget you got this child over here. It may not be in the child's best interest to have maximum contact with that parent. The parents may be in a high conflict relationship. Maximum contact might expose the child to uh, emotional and psychological harm. You know, I had a judge who talked about this concept of put your, pretend you're the child for once, right? You get home, you get settled into bed, you get into your routine, and all of a sudden you pack up all your stuff and you go live at the other parents for seven days. And you go back and forth, back and forth. You know, this is a ridiculous regime for a child, you know, for, you know, trying to understand why is there so much change in my life? So the short answer to your question is Margie, I like the change. I think the focus on best interests is a good one. This concept of maximum contact was a good one to argue if you're trying to increase your time despite, you know, your client's particular failings. And I think it's, it's a good focus to tell family court judges, uh, it's no longer about maximum contact. Look at best interest of the child. Maybe a step in the 
towards maximum contact is in the best interest of the child. Maybe it's not, you know, you need to do the analysis. You can't just simply park the child and say, okay, maximum contact, we're going to step it up. So I like it. So, and I hope I don't get in trouble for, <laughs> for being a little bit too opinionated on the change, but it's, it's a good change. We think that completes your first section too. Is that right, Margie? Yes, yes, it does. You're, you're next. Yeah. Get me heated up here and uh, let me go, I guess. So that's maximum contact. We're approaching our midpoint here. So if you're enjoying this podcast or this video and you find it helpful, give us a thumbs up and leave your comments below. It's always helpful to get your feedback uh, in terms of whether we're producing content that's helpful. I've got a couple sections here and then we're going to toss the ball back to Margie. I thought we would break it up a little bit. Uh, so what do we got here? History of care. New section is 16 sub 3 sub D of the Divorce Act. And what we need to do now is the court must now consider how, how the child was cared for in the past and the people who were involved in, in the roles played by uh, the children's lives. I think, um, you know, this is kind of, conceptually, this is kind of uh, an important section and I'm just kind of going off the cuff here. So when we go to court, we have a new status quo. We have two separated families. Um, so there's an argument to say, well, one parent may have done all the caregiving in the past, but this is an opportunity for the other parent to do the same. Uh, Lots of courts would automatically say until there's an agreement, we're going to default to 50-50 or do a nesting arrangement until a trial judge has a full evidentiary basis. That usually there's one parent who's been primary caregiver uh, and that parent has difficulty adjusting to this new role that that's no longer going to be the case. So this legislate, the section says we need to look at what has happened in the past. So maybe it's important that that parent continue to be primary caregiver, uh, even on an interim basis until the judge gets the evidence, as opposed to saying it's going to be a shared parenting regime. I know that's not going to be a popular opinion, but I think uh, it's child focused, right? We're trying to maintain stability, routine. Of course, we want to maintain a good relationship with both parents. But we can't ignore the fact that for the most part of this child's life, there's probably one parent who is primarily responsible for the day-to-day -day care of the child. And I think that's an important consideration. Uh, but that's my view. What about you, Michelle? What do you think of the section? I think it's wonderful, Russ. I think that it's so important that you focus on the care by both parents um, and to see who did what and what's in the best interest of the child going forward. As you stated, it may not be in the best interest of the child to remove them from the primary care of a parent that for the past six, eight or 10 years, they've been used to, to being cared for. So I think it was a great change. Alex, thoughts? I think the analysis in this area will really be an opportunity to showcase a parent's capacity on how in-depth they can assess the full gambit of their child or their children's needs. So I think the period before the divorce will provide a good snapshot for the court and provide an indication of the child's identity. One of the interesting factors will be with children whose views and interests uh, change and evolve over time. So I imagine the OCL and the voice of the child report uh, will play more of a significant role in cases where you have competing views going on. 
Exactly. Great, great points. Margie? Uh, thanks, Russ. Yes, I, I agree with uh, everything that everybody has said so far. Um, the only concern I have is, uh, you know, not trying to stir the pot, but most of the time when I'm trying to, uh, most of my cases, not most, but some of my cases where a parent is um, suddenly wanting, well, they, they, there's sometimes a dispute as to who was the primary caregiver right. of the child. Um, and so there becomes a concern that this might, for me, increase conflict as to, you know, the history of the care of the child and proving who actually did have that, the um, primary care of that child during the, during a relationship. So that's the only concern I have about this. Um, but taking into consideration all the other factors that have to be taken into account, um, there are other parts of the of the the new changes that. Um, will have to be taken into consideration, balancing that with the history of care of the child. So I think that's a good way of um, really bringing in other evidence um, of, of uh, for example, both one parent's willingness to uh, encourage a relationship between a child, for example, um, is, is a good way to really balance out what the potentially could be an issue with this new change. Yeah, and that's a bit of a rabbit hole, right? We, you know, where we're going to start counting days and who took the child to school, and you know, that never ends. We see that when people are in a dispute over whether their forty percent threshold has been made with respect to adjusting child support. So, that's a good red flag, Margie. Good tip. All right, so I've got one more section here, and then I'm going to throw it back to Margie. Child's Views and Preferences, Section 16.3 sub E of the Divorce Act. The child's view and preferences giving due weight to the child's age maturity unless they cannot be ascertained. So this has sort of been the flavor of the day in Ontario for the last year or so in terms of what we're calling a sort of a voice of the child. That could take, as Alex is indicating, um, the form of an OCL uh, report or a uh, social worker assist. It could be done privately, uh, but more and more the courts are going to be considering the voice of the child. And now we've seen it formalized in the Divorce Act changes. And if you saw me looking to the side a few minutes ago, I was trying to pull up a case that uh, came to my mind um, when I was thinking about this section. So I think it was Justice Parazzi who talked about this child who was terrified to return to Ontario because of COVID-19. The child had gone out uh, with mom to Newfoundland um, for Christmas and then wanted to stay out there. So there's a number of quotes in the decision. I'm going to include the decision um, as part of the show notes today. Um, essentially, an 18-year-old, he went, a court went, consider their views, they've already made up their mind. 16 year old, they probably won't bother interviewing. Um, the younger children, their views and preferences. Uh, this is a quote from the decision. In many cases, uh, in less unusual circumstances, uh, family court judges can often make determinations about how much weight to be attributed to a child's stated preferences based on a lot of predictable factors. So either, I, I think this is an important decision because this is sort of the filter we're gonna look at this change uh, and this new focus on views and preferences that has now been enacted in the Divorce Act. So some of these predictable factors the court talked about in this particular decision 
our age, maturity, clarity of the view, context, consistency, potential alienation or influence, the strength of the expressed view, and the thinking behind it. So a child may have a view or preference, but the court's gonna look at these other factors, right? Um, kids don't wanna go to the dentist, they still go to the dentist. Mom may have, or dad may have encouraged the child not to go to the other parent's uh, house for access that weekend. It might just be a bump in the road. So there's gonna be a lot that goes into this. It's not simply a bald statement by an eight-year-old that they don't wanna return home. They're gonna do a deeper dive. They're gonna look at all these things and maybe bring in experts to help the court in terms of social workers and other experts to ascertain the opinion. So overall, I think this is an important change and we certainly saw it coming down the pike in terms of Ontario had been doing this for some time. Uh, in terms of giving more consideration to the views and preferences of children and sending families off for a report to find out what they are. It doesn't mean the child's views are going to dictate the outcome. It's just one of many ingredients that go into the court's analysis when deciding these matters. So that's what I think. Um, what do you think, Alex? How about this uh, new section? So I think it's really great that we now have codification uh, that the child's voice is going to be given significant consideration. I think we have many children that want to assert their views uh, when there's a family breakdown and I think it'll invite and encourage parents to consider their children's needs. Uh, I also think that this is going to assist the court as it will be very telling to see how parents are going to react and respond to the views of their children. If those views are contrary to one parent's perception of how their children should be feeling or should be acting. And I think if we see a very adverse reaction by one of the parents, I think that will be very telling to the judge. So uh, a lot of interesting variables that'll happen with this, I think heartbreaking right if you're the parent that the child doesn't want to see anymore you know that's uh that's going to be a tough tough uh view to accept and then you also have the child that's caught in that loyalty bind and is that going right. to impact their views and preferences so you know you have to filter through all that somehow had a case recently and um the assessor recommended a shared parenting regime or whatever the language is that we're using now. And the, the child was five years old and mom said, well, I want a views and preferences analysis. That particular case, uh, the assessor thought that process would do more harm than good for a five-year-old, right? Um, you know, that view may mar that child for the next 18 years of her life, um, depending on what the outcome of the case was. So. Uh, got to be really careful about how we, you know, the ages and what we do with these views. Michelle, your, your take on this new section? Um, I absolutely like it. I really enjoy getting the views of the child when it's appropriate to do so, when the child right. is of a certain age. I also find it really does help to narrow the case and sometimes even settle it outside of court. Because if a child has a very strong view and it's clearly not coached, it's very uh, mature and it's a well thought out view, sometimes it may even be a view that neither party actually brought forward. And it's really interesting and telling to see what the child thinks. I find that after that discovery, after that, um, after hearing those views, 
it sometimes really helps to get parties to settle. So I think it'll be great and a great addition to this. I think it's just a snapshot in time, right? The child may express a view, maybe try a new parenting regime and decide I don't like it. It wasn't what I expected, right? So uh, views can be updated and changed as well. Marjorie? I, I echo everybody's uh, thoughts on this. It's, it's again, it's part of what uh, the, the Children's Law Reform Act in Ontario, we've, we have the uh, child's uh, children's views and preferences and that has always been in taken into consideration. Um, I've always had concerns about that when there are allegations of alienation um, and, and uh, just how we're going to be dealing with that because now it's, we, the courts shall take that into consideration. It's not right. no longer just a, a you know, an afterthought or, or let's think about what the, you know, what are the child's views and preferences, not no longer like an afterthought like it used to be. It's now shall be taken into consideration. And the other thing that I was thinking about is as a mediator, um, you know, as, a, as collaborative uh, family lawyers, we, we already, you know, we have family professionals that come in and might be able to assist in, in getting the, the child's views and preferences in somehow. Um, just, just thinking as a mediator from a practical point of view, uh, how that would work in mediation, um, who would be involved. So it's gonna be interesting how we could implement this. And um, I agree with you, Michelle, that if, if in, in the appropriate circumstances when there is no concern uh, that there is any alienation um, and the child is mature enough to express their views and preferences, um, it is a welcome change. Uh, from my perspective, just from a practical point of view, how we would implement that um, effectively, not just in the courts, but in, in our in a, a alternative dispute resolution processes. So thank you. Great point. Um, just to sort of wrap this section up, and I'm by no means any expert, but if a child is holding an overly strong view, right, we go back to that quote, I started off with, you know, clarity, context, consistency, the thinking behind the view, uh, potential alienation or influence. So, you know, if it's an overly strong view for a young child to be having, the court may find there is alienation or influence and may change custody because the view is uh, too extreme and clearly coached and influenced. So, you know, there's bookends, right? The child's view may be considered but not followed. And in fact, the opposite result may flow from it if it's an overly held view. Uh, but we'll see, right? This is an important change and it's a good thing that the court's going through this analysis. So thank you, everyone. Those are my talking points. I think I'm gonna throw it back to you, Margie. You got a couple more sections for us? Thanks, Russ. Uh, the next change or criterion that uh, the that we're going to be looking at is section 16 sub 3 sub, sub F. And that reads the child's cultural, linguistic, religious, and spiritual upbringing and heritage, including indigenous upbringing and heritage, uh, shall be taken into consideration. Um, so this is important in the sense that, again, it, it really harkens back to what we were talking about earlier, about really looking at each child. Every child is different and looking at that particular child's uh, life uh, before their parents divorce and how that's gonna be after. And the importance of their, uh, their culture, their language, their religion, their spiritual upbringing and heritage, um, how that, those factors uh, 
really assist in some, you know children in in giving that the stability they need to deal with their parents' uh, divorce. Um, the other interesting aspect of that this this change is the inclusion of you know just reference to indigenous upbringing heritage upbringing and heritage. And what, while the case law shows that the judges are are um, expected to avoid giving preference to any you know one parent's heritage over uh, the other parents, um, if, if parents uh, have a different cultural, uh, ethnic, or linguistic heritage, um, it looks like um, this provision would be used to reinforce uh, the importance of children having regular involvement with both parents and their extended families within those cultures. Um, and it's also uh, shows a preference for, you know, the courts will tend to have a, a preference for the parent who who uh, is more willing to support the heritage of the other parents. Um, so what are your thoughts, Russ? Right. Um, I was surprised there was no section already dealing with this. Uh, I know Alex could probably speak to this, uh, but I know the provincial legislation, especially for child protection matters, I think they're required to give notice to the ban or the tribe if the child's indigenous. So. For a federal piece of legislation to not have that section already, uh, I was surprised it wasn't there. Um, so I think you know this is filling an, filling an important gap um, and definitely uh, a much needed change. Thanks, Margie. Thanks, Russ. How about you, Michelle? Thanks so much, Margie. You know I absolutely like it. I think that. Um, it is very indicative of a parent if they do not embrace and accept another parent's um, culture or heritage. And I think it really does, it's usually a red flag for me. It speaks to that parent and how they're going to raise the child, how they're going to speak about the other parent if they've created a child with this person, but they don't respect the other parent's heritage. So I think it's really great, as Russ said, that it's now getting put into the federal legislation. I think it's something that we have um, looked at in the past, but it's great to have it absolutely codified in here so that everyone knows that this is, it's not just something we should think about, it is something we will think about. Thanks, Michelle. What about you, Alex? What are your thoughts on, on this new change? So, I mean, we've all seen that there are different scenarios with this aspect of the child's identity. Um, you know, sometimes you'll have two parents that have no attachment to a religion or cultural identity. And then, you know, there's no emphasis placed on those aspects. Then you'll have the case where there's one parent who does have an affiliation and then one who doesn't. And the one who does, um, you know, will be perfectly fine to have the other one accommodate uh, those uh aspects of the child's upbringing uh, in during the child's upbringing. I think the problematic scenario is where you have the polarized views between spouses uh, when they when they have conflict and to sort of you have competing religions or you have competing aspects, you know, biracial children. And I think the courts are going to be wanting to see that the conflict doesn't spill over into disrupting the child's sense of self-worth or identity. So I think it's going to be an important balance to reach when you have those multiple cultures and religions, or even it doesn't even have to be two. There could be other aspects from other family members. And there's, you know, Children are not sort of, you know, little tiny checkboxes. They have a myriad of influences and 
uh, places where they feel belonging. So I definitely think that it'll be important to highlight the identity of the child in court proceedings. Thanks, Alex. Just, I think it just highlights again the, the, the legislation's uh, focus on each child and each child's, their, their, their whole identity, right? Um, and that goes really to their psychological well-being, I think. So the next uh, change that we're going to talk about is section 16 sub 3 sub G, which is any plans for the child's care. So historically, the, the courts do want us parents to have a clear and practical uh, plan that they present to the court as to how they'll, they'll care for their children. And, and that's usually um, something we put into a form 35.1 in Ontario. Um, and the more practical the more practical the, the, the plan uh, and the more it encourages a relationship with the other parent, the more likely it would be um, accepted by the court. But this, the change in the Divorce Act uh, really aims to encourage the parents to develop this parenting arrangements between the two of them with as little uh, court intervention as possible. And in determining the best interest of the child, the court may consider, uh, again, how the parents plan to care for their children post-divorce and how they, they plan to make arrangements for their children when it comes to their religion, uh, religious education, medical care, uh, formal education, all, all the biggies. So what are your thoughts, Alex? So I always try to warn clients that when they're reaching a consent, um, it's a fairly good benchmark to finality, but I always, you know, let them know about the caveat that the judge can veto that arrangement. So we see many times where the court rejects proposals by litigants if they're not in accordance with the law. So a common one that I've observed is you know, a child exchange arrangement that's convenient for two spouses, but it's fairly onerous for the child. And, uh, you know, that child will have to endure a long commute. Uh, so that might be a situation where the court will highlight some of the risks with that arrangement. Uh, I'm pretty curious to hear the rest of uh, your opinion, uh, the rest of the team's opinion as to why a court might not want to incorporate provisions of a parenting plan if the court finds that it's not in the child's best interest. I'm sure we'll have some interesting insights on that. Yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on that, Michelle? I have my own thoughts, but I'll, I'll let you <laughs> give your, you, your thoughts. Absolutely. You know, we've, we've all had these cases and one I can think of that comes to mind that uh, I argued quite recently, the one party um, had, one party wanted the child to come into their care for a two hour window while they were available between work hours. And it created, I forget, 35 changes for this exchanges for this poor child every month. And, you know, my client was trying to accommodate by maximizing contact and giving the other parent these couple of hours. And when it finally came in front of a judge, the judge said, this is ridiculous. You know, this poor child cannot be going back and forth. Yes, maximizing contact is an important principle, but you know, two exchanges or three exchanges in a day to accommodate a two hour window is just not um, in the child's best interest. So I think it's really important and it will speak to one, both parties and what their ultimate goal is. Is the ultimate goal the best interest of the child or is their ultimate goal maybe other reasons? And two, you know, what the long-term care for this child might be under both parties. 
um, if they're willing to sacrifice the child's happiness and, you know, um, comfort in exchange for getting, you know, short visits for maybe other reasons. So that's, that's my, that's my thoughts on it. And I think that we're going to start to see a lot more of those instances crop up because of this. Thanks, Michelle. Well, how about you, Russ? Again, I'm surprised there was nothing in the old legislation dealing with this. Uh, we sometimes call this parenting plans. And this is really where you're going to make or break your case, right? This is really, if you're talking about custody and access, parenting time, you need a good parenting plan. My suggestion is just get a lawyer to help you do this. We've had a case recently where we even brought in a family professional uh, to help the lawyer fine tune the parenting plan for our client. That's how important this document was that we brought our own expert in to work on the parenting plan. I can't say enough how important this is. The judges are gonna look to this. There is actually a parenting plan tool that the Department of Justice provides. We're gonna include it in today's show notes. Um, just taking sort of a bigger picture look at this, uh, a case that Michelle and I often talk about is Barbaro and Wright, which is one of the first cases that came out after we went into lockdown in the spring of 2020. And that we're dealing with COVID-19, safety of the child, parents' parenting time, whether it should be suspended. And part of the criteria that the court sets out in that decision is what's your plan of your, your proposed parenting time for the child with the other parent. Um, so we're not suspending access. You need to set out how the other parent's gonna have act, you know, parenting time with this child during the pandemic. Uh, this is a bit off topic, but I, I just wanna use that case to illustrate how important parenting plans are. And I think you could probably take it a bit further. You're gonna have your own parenting plan include a parenting plan for the other parent. Say this is how I'm gonna facilitate the child's relationship with the other parent. These are the steps I'm prepared to take. Could be using something like Family Wizard for communication, uh, meeting halfway for access, uh, it may be extended family members such as grandparents on the other side will have contact uh, and encourage that relationship. It reminds me of a case, I'm getting a bit long-winded here, but you can tell I get excited about these things, where I represented dad, mom was estranged. Uh, well, there's an access dispute. Uh, mother's father, so maternal grandfather, was estranged from the daughter. So called up my client, say, can I see my grandchild? My client asked, oh, sure, of course. Why not? It's an important relationship just because mom's got a dispute with the grandparent, the grand, you know, this child still needs to have contact with that relationship. So, you know, think outside of the box in terms of your parenting plan, how extended family members are gonna be affected. Extended family members on the other side of the family uh, are also play an important role. You don't need to exclude them or alienate them. And if you do that, I think the court's really gonna find that you've got a very, compelling parenting plan and will likely act on it. Thanks, Margie. Thanks, Russ. I just wanted to add that um, if the parents do agree under the new, the new Divorce Act provisions to a parenting plan, 
the, there's a section 16.1. I know that's not part of a discussion today, but uh, the section 16.6.1 of the New Divorce Act requires that the court to include the, the provisions of that, that parenting plan uh, in their parenting or contact order, unless the court finds it's not in the best interest of the child. So I was just mentioning that just to address Alex's uh, comment about um, you know, situations where perhaps that parenting plan is not in the best interest of the child, the courts do have the authority to modify it uh, in, in the extent that they think that it's in the child's best interest. Thanks. I think the next person um, to deal with uh, our next section is, is Alex. Yeah, Alex, you can bring it home for us. This has been a long run. This is some really great discussion so far. I'll see what I can do for you guys and the rest of the folks watching. So uh, fingers crossed. So the uh, first section I'm going to be talking about is the ability and the willingness of each person in respect of whom the order would apply to care for and meet the needs of the child. And this is captured under section 16, subsection 3, subsection H. So under this section, the court must consider the ability and willingness of each person to whom an order would apply to care for and meet the needs of the child. And the reason we have this change is because we have to look at the past, present, and future ability and willingness of a person to care for a child. Uh, and in some cases, you'll have a parent's uh, physical, psychological, or some other limitation that may raise concerns for the child's health and safety, well-being, and development. So the court definitely will want to consider this going forward. I think we're going to see some interesting analysis with this provision as contact parents and other extended family members may undertake a caregiving role for, you know, a significant period of time. So in family situations where you have multiple members, we can see many competing plans. I mean, a lot of the time you have a dispute as Margie was uh, raising who was the caregiver uh, in a particular situation. So with respect to limitations, I think issues such as uh, poverty and addiction that some parents have to go through that will potentially impair a caregiver from being able to manage the physical needs of a child. And this could potentially raise charter issues if public resources are not available to assist some of the caregivers with the barriers that they face. So I think we might be seeing some interesting and potentially varied results in terms of how the best interests of the child are determined by a particular judge with a particular scenario. So um, Michelle, you're up with your insights. What are your thoughts on this? I absolutely had those same thoughts when reading this. Um, you know, we, I also have clients um, and opposing parties with mental health issues, addiction issues, all of those things. And it's interesting because if you have a party with a history of uh, police involvement, for instance, where they have been incarcerated, you know, numerous occasions, it would absolutely impact their ability to provide long-term um, care for a child. And you know, there there are also other cases where that may happen. And you're right, Alex. I think we're really going to have to lean on resources that are available um, in various situations for different people in different circumstances. Um, but we also will have to determine what's in the best interest of the child, given that specific uh, situation and given each party's ability to care for the children. 
Yeah, those are really great points, Michelle. And I'm sure while the client is dealing with that, even within your own solicitor client relationship, you might have to sort of navigate some interesting scenarios while you're having discussions with your client as well. Uh, Margie, what are your thoughts uh, on this section? Uh, thanks, Alex. Um, well, I mean, again, this is this is there's something similar to this in the um, um, I think in terms of how we practice um, law, we've, it, when you're when you're focusing on the best interest of the child and your and your analysis is uh, the child and what's best for them, you're always going to look at whether or not the parent who's seeking um, that parenting order uh, is able and willing to provide that what that child needs. Um, and just drawing back to uh, Ontario law, the way we 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 um, determine that is through uh, this in the, the Children's Law Reform Act. There's a Section 30 assessment that can be done, um, and you can appoint a person uh, a, a person with a technical or professional skill, such as a social worker or a psychologist, um, to really uh, assess and then report to the court about what does the child need and the ability and willingness of the parents um, or parent to provide what that child needs. Um, so that's what my yeah, that's a really great point, Marge. I think we're going to have to rely to some extent on expertise because I think the court's going to want to see some independent uh, perspectives uh, before the court. Uh, Russ, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this may open uh, the floodgates for some litigation. You know, each person who's going to be involved in the care role, so a good chance it's going to be a sibling, uh, a, a, a grandparent perhaps of some sort. So then you have to, I think we're going to need to consider, well, what evidence do we need to assess ability? The criminal record check, uh, previous court orders involving other children, previous involvement with the Children's Aid Society for this other person. Uh, if they're aged and unable to care for themselves, are they going to be able to care for this child? So there's lots here, right? Um, lot, lots to consider in terms of it, we're not just talking about a parent, we're talking about somebody who's going to be responsible for the care of the child. Parent, the parent might go to work and now somebody is going to be present looking after the child. Multi-generational families, is there somebody in the household who has, you know, a criminal record that would pose a risk to the child, perhaps sex offenses. So, you know, you really need to do your diligence in terms of parenting plans and what extended uh, people uh, are going to be part of that parenting plan and whether they're going to be willing to be subject to producing this information. Uh, lots of people like to be private and keep to themselves. They don't want to get involved in litigation. Um, so they're going to need to say, yeah, I'm prepared to consent to release information and uh, answer any questions the court may have or the opposing counsel. So I think it's an important addition. Thank you, Alex. Right, thanks, Raz. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think we're gonna be looking at an evidentiary basis to narrow some of the issues that could definitely blow up into a lot more complicated scenarios. Uh, so that takes us to the next section here, which is a parent's ability and willingness uh, to communicate and cooperate with one another, with one another on matters affecting the child. 
So uh, the court has to consider that. And um, the reason why we want to look at this is because children benefit when their parents cooperate and communicate with each other for the most part. I mean, there are caveats to that. So parents who cooperate and communicate are more likely to manage flexible parenting arrangements and decisions for their children. And uh, in certain situations, parents need to have detailed agreements just because of the high level of conflict. And these orders can sometimes make it less likely that children will be exposed to conflict uh, between their parents. So I think when um, we're looking at this section, we're seeing a huge shift with communication with respect to the technological revolution. So particularly in the climate of COVID-19. So parents now have more technological devices and applications than ever before. Some of the mechanisms available are quite sophisticated. Russ, you were mentioning our family wizard before. So that will help parents manage scheduling and appointments with a digital calendar. We'll have check-in systems to ensure pickup locations. And we'll even have a message board where communications cannot be modified, where you have very conflictual parents. So some pretty groundbreaking uh, stuff that didn't exist previously. So uh, Margie, what are your thoughts on where this is going to take us going forward? Well, I, I, I like this new change because again, um, just like the other provisions the new changes, I, I find that uh, the legislation is really taking into account what we as family lawyers have seen and, and, and um, expressed to courts, uh, how we present our, our cases. I, I often, um, when, when one parent is un, unwilling to communicate or cooperate with the other parent, that really says a lot about them and their inability to really think about what's in the best interest of their child. And perhaps if there's an inability or unwillingness to communicate because of domestic violence, which I know we're gonna be talking about later on uh, in this uh, podcast, um, then maybe, you know, shared parenting isn't appropriate. But if there is no concerns about, uh, about uh, family violence um, and there is a willingness to communicate and, uh, be, with both parents, then perhaps the, short, the shared uh, parenting um, decision-making responsibility and parenting arrangement is appropriate. So again, I, I, I like the fact that they, the, the, the Divorce Act actually puts this in to uh, this is in divorce act because this is what as family lawyers we've been you know when we're when we're uh, advocating for our clients this is what we what we present to the court right so that's my take yeah really good points and sometimes it's not about what uh, the courts don't necessarily look at what you're doing they look at what you're not doing so uh, I definitely echo uh, the comments that you made uh, Russ thoughts input yeah believe it or not I have an opinion so. When I meet a new client, I usually, what I'm thinking of is, okay, day five of a custody trial, evidence is in, the judge, it, it could go either way, you know, we've all had cases this way where both parents are great, um, judge is going to need to make a decision. That decision, in my assessment, will turn on the ability to communicate and cooperate. So what I'm saying here is one parent's demonstrated they're gonna facilitate the child's relationship with the other parent, communicate and cooperate, they are gonna be successful. So th this, is, this is what happens at the end of the case of two years of litigation, five days of evidence. This is what the court's gonna consider. 
So I think it's refreshing to see it in the change to the Divorce Act. I'll include the, in the show notes uh, a link to My Family Wizard, which you mentioned. Um, cooperate is the key here. Like we can all communicate, send a text message or an email that's neutral and show it to the court and say, look, I sent them a message or whatever. Cooperate means it's your parenting time. The other family has an event of some sort, maybe a hundred year birthday for a grandparent or a wedding. Cooperate means send the child to the other parent's event. Don't say it's my weekend, too bad, so sad. This is the analysis the court's gonna be looking for when applying this new section of the Divorce Act. Um, and it's not tongue in cheek. If you're just pretending to cooperate, but you're not, uh, the court's gonna pick up on that. So really what your responsibility is, and this is going to, as to parents and our clients, is to encourage the child's relationship with the other parent. It means you're gonna be putting your interests behind those of the child. Uh, your particular event that you had planned for whatever is occurring is gonna go secondary to whatever the child's needs are, which may be some kind of activity with the other parent. That's it in a nutshell. So I think it's a good change. I think it's important. Uh, not a lot of people talk about this at the front end. Uh, usually clients come in to see their lawyers. They're upset, betrayed, angry. There might be infidelity. They could be hurt with respect to perceived wrongs during the course of the relationship. Very little patience, very little currency for communication and cooperation. So I like the fact that they're putting this at the front end and directing everybody, including judges to say, this is an important factor. Thanks, Alex. Exactly, it's those underlying emotions that sometimes dictate where the case is gonna go. Uh, Michelle, what are your thoughts on the communication cooperation? This actually reminds me of a, a really interesting case I had a number of years ago. So the parties are separated, um, child is a bit older, and the child wants to stay with mom. So, you know, teenagers are, are smart and we can never put anything past them. So the teenager wanted to go to some sporting event in downtown Toronto, uh, spoke to mom. Mom said, no, sorry, you cannot go to the sporting event. It's, you know, too old for you. There'll be adults drinking, all of these issues. You can't do it. So teenager goes to dad um, who, and ask him the same thing. Of course, dad says, yeah, of course, you can go to this event, no problem. Doesn't matter that it's on mom's parenting time, it's great. Uh, so teenager goes to his best friend and says, yeah, we got the green light, you know, let's, let's get the tickets. And so the best friend's parents actually buys the ticket. And then uh, it turns out that the tickets cost $245 US each. When dad is given this bill by the teenager, the dad says, oh, nope, not, no, your mother said that you can't do it. So we're not going to, uh, I'm not going to pay for it. I'm not going to do this. And of course, as soon as the judge heard about what had happened, heard that, you know, dad had gone behind mom's back, had made a decision on mom's parenting time. And then of course, once he realized the financial cost to it had backed out of that decision, really took an adverse inference against dad and said, you know, these are the things that teenagers are going to do and you need to communicate with the other party. Poor mom had never, hadn't even known that uh, this had happened until it exploded and all of these, these things came out. 
So absolutely, communication can be that. It could be that one thing that really creates the downfall of your case and really shows a judge which party is going to make decisions that are in the best interest of the kids and which party may be playing games behind the scenes to win the favor of the child. So hopefully that's a lesson for everyone, Alex. Communication is key. Just on that note, sorry, I, I, you know, we see these text messages attached to affidavits and there's a real debate as to whether or not it's proper evidence before the court. And we have concerns now with deep flakes and, and fraudulent evidence. But a judge told me privately once, the first thing they do is go to those text messages because they're going to say who's cooperating and who's communicating and who's not, right? People say awful things at two o'clock in the morning when they're upset about a custody or access issue. So good point. Yeah, no, thank you very much, uh, Michelle, for sharing that case example. That was really great. And I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in that courtroom with that judge. Uh, I don't know if I envy or sympathize uh, that you had to see that wrath from the judge, but uh, definitely great example for us to have for today's uh, section. Uh, so our next section is the family violence. This one's going to be a bit of a doozy. Um, there is quite a bit of content here, so I am going to try to distill the main points, but I do want to give it the attention that it deserves. So um, the section on family violence uh, requires the court uh, to look at the ability and willingness of any person who's engaged in family violence to care for and meet the needs of the child, the appropriateness of making an order that would require persons in respect of whom the order would apply to cooperate on issues affecting uh, the child as well. And this is governed under section 16, subsection 3, subsection J of the Divorce Act. So when the court is looking at this, um, the significant reason for uh, the emphasis uh, being placed on family violence is because in Canada there are uh, a significant amount of cases where there's family violence against children and spouses both during and after the separation and evidence would indicate that family violence has wide-ranging effects on victims and families. I had mentioned earlier uh, when we were talking about the psychological harm and uh, the emotional well-being of the child the, some of the effects could be incalculable. Even clinicians, you know, wrestle with some of the aftermath of what children have been exposed to in terms of a breakdown where there's been a high level of family conflict. Uh, the interesting thing to note is prior to these amendments, the act made no reference to family violence. So this is definitely a very uh, big game changer. And the courts are now going to have to consider the relevance of any family violence. Uh, the court will be looking at the history of family violence uh, and, you know, how that uh, affects a person's ability to parent when looking at the best interests of the child legal test. Um, this can be violence with the child. It could be in a situation where they might use the relationship with the child to be violent or control the spouse. Uh, it could also be used in a situation where, um, you know, it's caused the child to be fearful of a particular caregiver. And, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. So um, my particular take on this is that I think it's absolutely crucial and it's a great addition to the legislative changes. Um, I think there's tons of different definitions of violence and I think we need to start getting out of that 
routine where we just associate violence with physical and realize that it's a much bigger uh, constellation going on in terms of the psychological risks, uh, mental risks. Uh, there's a lot of emotional risks. I mean, I have a child protection background, so I had the benefit of my client was the clinical uh, expert uh, in assessing these things. So, um, but I want to hear what the rest of the team thinks about this. So Russ, thoughts on the new section on uh, domestic violence? A long time coming and it's telling that there was no old section on this. Um, again, as I mentioned earlier in our podcast, this uh, one of these things that we don't see every day that it poses an immediate and very serious risk to spouses. I think the stats are off the chart that you're more likely to be harmed or killed by your spouse than a third party stranger. People who get caught up uh, with domestic violence uh, sometimes don't see uh, the train that's coming. Oftentimes courts will have to step in. Uh, we see complainants try to retract their statements to get criminal charges reduced or changed so their spouse can return home. Courts are now saying that's probably not appropriate because the victim may not appreciate the risk uh, that's out there. So I think it's an important change and certainly an important topic that we need to keep focus on and keep talking about. Thank you. Yeah, definitely, Russ. Margie, what are your thoughts on this new section? I have to say that this is my favorite uh, new change in the Divorce Act um, because, and, and, and I really like the fact that sub two, the appropriateness of making an order that would require persons in respect of whom the order would apply to cooperate on issues affecting a child. I think that really shows a recognition by you know the legislature and that you know the intention is to both protect not just the children uh, from direct harm, but to ensure that the victims of intimate um, partner violence are not coerced into like ongoing uh, abusive relationships with their former partner as a result of the parenting arrangements. Um, and and I like the definition of uh, the inclusion of the definition of family violence, which. Like you said, Alex, it's not just you know in the stereotypical physical abuse that we know. Um, you know, it's not just about the bruises that you see on someone's um, body. It's also you know psychological abuse, financial abuse, uh, intentional harm to pets, destruction of property, um, things that as we collaborative uh, the lawyers who you know engage in the collaborative process and the mediation see, and you know part of our training is to screen for domestic violence. So we're well aware of these types of different um, types of violence, but the fact that the Divorce Act now incorporates that, um, it really flags for all professionals to, to be mindful of how important it is to, to assess family violence in, in, in making parenting arrangements. So I, I really like this new change. Yeah, really good points, Margie, and uh, I completely agree. Sometimes it's the invisible damage that's more jarring than the actual physical. So I uh, definitely agree with those points. And Michelle, uh, your thoughts on the domestic violence with the Divorce Act? I absolutely echo what everyone else has said here. What an important um, section to be included. I think it's, you know, bravo that it's, it's being included now. And, you know, we are in the midst of this pandemic. And as we know, family violence is on the rise. What a great time to have this legislation introduced. I think that uh, this pandemic has really shown the risk that 
um, at-risk people have, and especially now where you may be trapped in a house with the person who is um, violent towards you and the children. And once you actually do get out of that situation, it's important for us as lawyers and as judges and in the court system to protect you from harm going forward and to protect your children from harm going forward. Yeah, no, Michelle, I couldn't agree with you more. And just like all of you, I'm very excited about this section. So I think we're going to see a lot of great things uh, in the decision making process in light of this section. And I cannot believe it. We're towards the last section now. So good job, team. We pulled through and made it through. You're doing uh, great, Alex. Awesome. Well, Russ, my success is contingent on the people I'm doing the presentation with. So we're going to share that success. But thank you very much. So our last section is uh, any civil or criminal proceeding, order, condition, or measure that is relevant to the safety, security, and well-being of the child. Uh, and that section is uh, under 16.3, subsection K of the Divorce Act. Uh, so the courts are going to have to consider any criminal or civil proceedings when they're doing the best interests of the child analysis. Um, I mean, typically, we usually see this with a criminal proceeding where there's been a prior conviction. Um, we could also see that in another civil case. Most likely, people will turn to a case before Children's Aid Society uh, to assess if there were any significant child protection concerns that required uh, the society to become involved. Um, for me, I feel like this provision makes perfect sense. I think there are critical pieces of evidence that are tested in a civil or a criminal proceeding that provide insight to the court and sometimes insight to other parties in a proceeding for that matter. So when I was legal counsel for Children's Aid Society, I would rely on prior criminal convictions when arguing motions and the court accepted that as a significant consideration in, ex uh, in assessing risk towards a child, but more importantly, crafting an order that would mitigate that risk. So um, Margie, thoughts on the civil and criminal uh, consideration in the Divorce Act? Uh, I also like this this change, um, but being a practical person, I just question how uh, we would, uh, from a practical point of view, how the family courts can be made aware of any past or existing uh, criminal orders or uh, civil protection orders um, that may not even be in effect any longer. So. I mean, that's my primary concern. Um, I think this puts uh, an obligation on litigants as well to, uh, I would argue, to, to disclose any sort of um, criminal matters that are, that are ongoing, perhaps. Um, but from a practical point of view, if, if someone doesn't disclose it, how will the court know? That's just my, my question on that. Right, Margie. And um, as we know, litigants hiding information is not common at all in family law proceedings. <laughs> so uh, I definitely uh, take your point on that one. Michelle, civil and criminal proceedings with the Divorce Act as a consideration. What are your thoughts? Absolutely crucial. You know, I have a case right now where the opposing party has a lengthy criminal history. And I think it is absolutely relevant and absolutely important for the court to not only hear it from me, but get the disclosure directly about those um, past criminal offenses. Because even though it wasn't perpetrated towards the child, in some instances, the child was involved or the child was a witness to some of these illegal activities. And I think it really does go to show 
how that person is going to continue to care for a child um, if in the past they have made decisions that are were not in uh, the best interest of the child. So I think it's important. I do share Margie's concern about how do we police this? How do we ensure that people are providing this background and this disclosure? But I do know that a judge would absolutely draw an adverse inference if you did not provide it. So for instance, in the form 35.1, you have to provide um, any criminal proceedings or criminal history, not only of yourself, but of people that you're living with. And if it's found that you didn't provide that form um, to its full extent, or maybe you didn't update that form or something new happened, I think a judge could really make an adverse inference against you. No, I completely agree. And uh, just to uh, your point and Margie's point, even if that is uncovered, just from a procedural perspective, that could be voluminous records that could involve like you know, a very significant cross-examination and you have to look at how that's going to make a proceeding protracted. So a lot of interesting things that we'll have to look at. And uh, finally, Russ, what are your thoughts on uh, criminal civil consideration? Well, usually spouses will know that nefarious conduct or criminal past. So certainly the information's out there. Office of the Children's Lawyers have lots of tools in their toolbox to get directions and release information from child protection authorities, um, police records, criminal records search, you know, you can do a CPIC search. The court has a system called Frank that monitors uh, court information uh, and with their case lines and other information coming online, I think we'll see that streamline. So I'm not, I think the information if it's out there will be accessible in one form or the other through a number of these means. Well, what the public needs to remember is we have often dual court proceedings. So you're going to go to family court, you're going to see a family court judge. If you have a, if you're charged with a criminal offense or a victim of domestic violence, you're likely going to be in a different court, um, probably the provincial court of justice, or if it's a serious charge, the superior court, you're going to be before different judges. Uh, the family court has judges usually specific just to family court matters. So um, the courts are going to need to work together to get this information. Uh, certainly bail conditions uh, can be produced if somebody's been charged or an officer in charge undertaking. Uh, and that certainly is a relevant consideration. So I think it's, uh, again, I'm surprised this was absent from the previous legislation. It's good that it's here. And I think it's, um, another important tool for the courts to help families going through divorce. Great. Thanks so much, Roz. And that wraps up your section. Great job, Alex. So we're going to bring this train into the station and wind up our podcast. Before we do, I want to get some, first of all, I want to thank our uh, guests who have given up almost two hours of their day today, uh, who have very busy schedules to share their thoughts and comments about these important changes. Uh, I don't think you'll find information in, in insight like this anywhere else, at least not that I know of. Most people who search for the changes get uh, long drawn out papers here. You're getting real life examples of how these changes are gonna impact families uh, going through divorce. So really a great or valuable resource. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your insight today. So let's get some final thoughts and commentary. We'll do, uh, do a round table here in no particular order. 
Um, let's start with Alex. So I think the changes are really exciting because uh, I think we're seeing an expansion of the scope of the best interests of the child analysis. I think we'll see a bit more scrutiny on areas that previously may have been overlooked. And I think children will ultimately benefit when orders are made with these enhanced considerations. And uh, I thank everyone for their input today. And your insight, Alex, is former CS, CAS uh, counsel is really helpful. Thank you for sharing your experience with us. Margie? Yes, I, I echo what Alex said. Um, there are so many positive things about the changes, um, but I don't want to stir the pot or uh, extend this, uh, this interesting conversation, but some critics might say, not me, but some critics might say that, uh, you know, to what extent this, do these uh, new provisions really clarify what the best interest of the child? I mean, as you know, we've, we've had these uh, discussions about best interest of the child, the, the factors to be considered under the, uh, the Children's Law Reform Act prior to these changes coming into effect uh, with the New Divorce Act. Um, so to some extent, it's still a bit of a, you know, some one parent might think that in what's, what's in the best interest of their child is focusing on their religion, for example, whereas another person, another parent might have a different opinion on that. So to the extent that it, it provides clarity, some critics might say no, but I think in, in my opinion, it, the fact that the primary consideration really focuses on the child's um, well-being and safety and um, focusing on a lot of the aspects of, uh, of a child's life, not just um, what we usually, we used to think about. So their, their religion, their, their upbringing, their uh, psychological well-being, their safety um, really assists in um, really helping the courts decide what's in the best interest of each particular child. You know, a lot of these are absolutes. The court must consider these. So I think we're getting some clarity. A lot of these sections never existed before. Um, ultimately, it comes down to judicial discretion in terms of what factors they're going to balance. Uh, but I think it's promoting a more holistic view of the child and best interests with, uh, by identifying these things. But great tips and great thoughts, Margie. Thank you. Michelle? Yeah, I agree with um, both of your takes. I think that it will have to be on a case-by-case -case basis, but isn't that exactly what we're saying, you know, that the best interest of the child is not one thing. It's very much um, based on this particular case and this particular child or children. Um, and I think that it will be important for the courts to put some emphasis on some issues in some cases and maybe emphasis on other issues on other cases, but that um, it really gives family lawyers and judges the ability to look at a, a very large number of criteria when making these decisions. So I think it'll be a great overall experience and opens up some interesting arguments as we've discussed today. Great insight, Michelle. So again, um, we're, we're approaching the two hour mark and we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we broke best interests down into a couple parts uh, this is a six-part series that we're doing on changes to the Divorce Act. Um, so we're really talking about several or maybe even dozens of hours of discussion. Lots going on here. Very important changes. Uh, lots of things to consider. But most importantly, I want to thank again my guests for very generously giving us their time today. I want to thank everybody for listening and watching. 
and have a great day.